Voting is incredibly important. Being on a jury is incredibly important. But those are still almost passive ways to get involved in our republic. Right. You can consciously, proactively get involved by calling these people. They want you. We want you to call us. I don't know what's going on all over my entire county unless somebody calls and says, hey, here's this issue. And when right. they do, I take it seriously. And so does every other elected official. That's how you get involved. That's how you make change. Let these kind of situations wake you up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Wake Up Stories. My name is Laura. Hey, y'all, I'm Andrea. We are so excited to have you guys with us today. And we have our guest who has returned to the Wake Up Stories. You might remember James Dutton from our episode when we were discussing the Confederate flag. If you missed that episode, go back and catch it. You don't want to miss it. We are discussing how we feel on whether we think it should be legal or illegal. He was so great on that episode that we wanted to bring him back. If you don't remember, James Dutton has a master's in public administration. He has a juris doctorate in law. He's a former felony public defender. He tried 70, 750 cases in two and a half years. Keep in mind, they typically only handle, oh gosh, what was it? Like a hundred cases a year or something like that. But he did 750 cases in two and a half years and lost none, which is amazing as a public defender. He's also a founding partner in Dutton and Dutton, the vice chair of the County Commission for Spalding, Georgia, which is an elected position, Uh, father of two and is happily married. James, welcome back. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Glad you guys had me back. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Yes, we are so excited. So Last time James was here, he did a really good job of just explaining things of how a situation can look down the road and how there's sometimes unintended consequences that may or may not happen. When you want to make a change and you you think of how you want to change it here and now, but we don't always think of the unintended consequences that may or may not happen down the road. He did such a great job of explaining that really resonated and we wanted to bring him back, especially because you guys know we go through and we hear personal stories of how people have been either experienced bias themselves or how they've woken up to their own bias and became advocates and change for other people. And so as a former public defender for felonies, James has a lot of stories and he has seen some things go down that mm, might make you go literally. And so we just want to jump in. He's got a couple of stories to share with us on just what he's seen and experienced in this topic and in this realm. And we want to explore it a little bit more. We think you guys are going to find it very interesting. So James, please take it away. Tell us your story. There, there really is just such a ton uh, of, of stories that I we could really go into. I've narrowed them down to a couple that are the most, most vivid, the most clear, that it doesn't really require a law degree to go, oh, wow, the way this was handled wasn't okay. Again, like you said, uh, as a public defender, I've had 750 clients, and of those that, that went to trial, I, I, I didn't lose any uh, while a public defender, and, and since then, now I'm in private practice. I'm well over the, the 2,000 client mark and still with a very good track record, but the more that you see on the other side of the curtain, like I do, the longer you work in the sausage factory, the more you go, maybe the public doesn't know exactly how these sausages are made. And that's the same thing here with criminal justice and the justice system in general, when you really get in there and really see it from behind the curtain, from the insider's point of view, you, you just go, 
man, more people need to know about what's going on here. And I think that could change people's points of view on things. One of the, the most common re responses I get when I tell people I'm a criminal defense attorney is they say, oh man, I, I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't defend those people. And I always go, what, what do you mean those people? Oh, criminals, oh, bad guys. I go, look, some of the people that I defended as public defenders were bad people. They had done something wrong. They knew they had done something wrong. But the overwhelming majority had been in a bad situation, whether it's because of their mental health or it was because of wrong place, wrong time or an addiction issue. And they really needed our help, not our scorn and our pity and our, and our the systematic punishment. They really needed someone to step in and say, hey, let's try to change this person's life. And so that's really what I thought my job was and, and still do. Hey, let's look at this in a holistic perspective and not just say, he did A and so B must happen. No, each one of these people is a human and let's really look at it. And the system, unfortunately, is not 100% set up, let's say. Is that the most diplomatic way to say that? See it from that same perspective. It's very much- I a, think so. No, they did this thing. We've got to do X, Y, Z. Like, here's the response. And I'll tell you this story first, because it's a very dramatic story. And I'll keep everyone's name out of it because the people are still around and still out there living their lives. And I don't want to interfere with that at all. One night on December 30th, December 31st, back in like 2015, I want to say, an officer got a call for a shots fired call into one of the very, very bad neighborhoods where there's a lot of crime, a lot of gang activity here in Griffin. And the officer responded in non-emergency mode. That means with no lights on. And it's winter at nearly midnight. And the streetlight was out of the address he was going to. So he pulls over across the street. There's no lights. It's very dark. He's in an SUV. So he's not even in something that looks like a cop car. And he hops out. And the only light that really is around is his giant mag light, right? He walks over to the house that's across the street on the corner, knocks on the door, no response, knocks again, no response. Oh, I'm leaving. He turns around to walk back to his car. And when he turns, he sees some movement in the yard of the house next door. Immediately, he sprints back to his vehicle, goes around the backside of it, lays down, draws his gun, and points his light at the guy who's in that yard. And he begins to scream, put your gun down, put your gun down, put your gun down. Now, when he lays down, he activates the, the apparatus that's on his waist that opens the car door for the canine unit to come out automatically. The canine pops out going, hey, what's going on? What are we doing? I don't see anybody. What's, where are we at? And so he hops up, grabs the canine, puts it back in the vehicle, closes the door, comes back around to the front of the vehicle. Again, still the gun drawn. And he's doing the, the cross hand thing. So the mag lights, you know, pointing where the gun's pointing. And he begins to, to scream at this person, show me your hand, show me your hand, show me your hands. I'll go into detail of the gun he's using. He's using what is a pretty standard police issue. It's a 40 caliber handgun made by Glocks. Glock has a trigger safety, but no push button safety or thumb safety. So if you draw it and put your finger on the trigger, it will fire. They're right. Safety, by, by, that, by safety, James, just so they know, because my husband shoot, we shoot a lot of gun. What, just for clarification, what you mean is with the Glock, when you go halfway, that's, that's engaging it. And then it's all the way. The safety is that little click halfway when you're pulling the trigger. That's right. So yes. if you pull the so trigger, it fires. It, yes. You can't 
accidentally pull the trigger. But if you mean to pull exactly. the trigger, there's no half it's second coming. to go, oh, I need to put my thumb on this or push this button to right. engage the gun. The gun's ready to go. Okay, and go of course, ahead. there's one in the chamber. It's a 40, it's a Glock 40. He sees this individual who's in a, a white tank top, so an older black male. And he's yelling, show me your hands, show me your hands. So the, the black male comes out into the street with his hands up. His hands are up and the officer sees that he has a pistol in an underslung holster, like underarm holster. And so the officer begins to scream, put the gun on the ground, put the gun on the ground, put the gun on the ground. How do you get a gun out of an underslung holster? You reach down and you pick it you up. You have to reach for it. You put it on the gun. Right. As soon as he removes it from the holster, still one hand in the air, the officer begins to fire. <gasps> the officer shoots 11 shots. 11? Them, 11 shots in quick succession. Pop. One, six of them hit the, the male. While he's firing, a car drives between uh, him and the suspect, okay, my client, and he never stops firing. One of the shots goes through the front windshield of that car and through the officer who was driving that car's ear. It bounces off the bulletproof glass that's between that officer and the back seats and comes to rest in his lap. The, that officer turns out to be a lieutenant who is responding to the scene. Again, non-emergency. Right. And all of a sudden he's getting shot through the window from the angle he shot at. We know that the, the shot came through the front glass, the direction of the, the initially responding officer was and could not have come from behind because behind him is bulletproof glass separating the officer from the back seats. So my client is now shot six times, one in both shoulders, one in the stomach, one through the wrist of his right hand, severing the tendons in his right hand, and once in his eye, which blew out a chunk of his head. His what? immediate response is to drop the gun where he was and grab onto his stomach to hold his blood in. He stumbles about 10 yards, maybe, falling down into the driveway of the house where the officer initially responded to. The officer's immediate reaction, at this point, another officer has arrived from around the corner on foot, gun drawn, having heard the gunshots. Mm -hmm. And while that second officer, I guess really the third, is covering my client who's on the ground with his hands on his stomach bleeding, the initial officer that fired pats my client down and handcuffs him, leaving him there bleeding on the sidewalk. They pat both of his legs down. They pat him down. Then they walk over to my client's gun, pick it up, and move it next to the client on the ground. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Oh. They're not calling paramedics? Nope. Exactly. This is a, this oh, no, a combat situation the, for them. They're staging the crime right, scene well, right now. I'm sensing this, yes. So <laughs> the oh my gosh. lieutenant's dash cam that drove through the shooting wasn't working. His body cam wasn't working. His oh recording device, the audio recording device, also was not working. The first officer's dash cam wasn't working. His body cam wasn't being worn. They weren't mandatory then. 
and his audio recording device also was not activated. The officer wow. that ran around the corner didn't have on a body cam, nor was his audio recorder activated. So we had something like eight things that just, whoops, we, yeah, we just didn't get a recording. What we do have is one of the officers who drove up after all this, his dash cam was working the entire time. And that's why we know that one of the officers went over and picked up the gun picked and moved, moved it because that's actually on camera. Now, wow. the, as soon as the officer gets shot through the ear, he gets on the radio and goes, officer shot, officer shot. So every officer in the world descends on this neighborhood. And, they, and now they're sending an emergency situation. All the lights are on and it's a bad time. The paramedics come. By the time the paramedics get there, there's six or so officers standing around my client who is still handcuffed on the ground with his brains seeping out of his head and bleeding from six gunshot wounds. No one is rendering him any assistance at all. No one. The paramedics come and say, this man needs a helicopter right now. So they go and call the air rescue lands at a nearby fire station. And the officer with the hurt ear gets on that helicopter and it leaves with him. What? And they take it to our level one trauma center Grady. When the paramedics realize that's what's just happened, they're like, you have a hurt ear. What the heck? Right. Why, like, this guy's been shot in the head. He, like, so they call a second air ambulance that oh takes gosh. significantly longer to get here. Keep in mind that only the paramedics are like trying to hold blood in at this oh, point. Yeah. Like helping around looking at it takes significantly longer to get the second air ambulance. They finally put him in the second air ambulance and the cops insist he can't go to the level one trauma center because that's where the officer went and it would be a safety concern. Oh so we must gosh. send him to Atlanta Medical, which is not a bad hospital, but, but it's, it's not, not Grady. It's Grady not Grady. is the number one trauma hospital in the state of Georgia. Yes, and probably the Southeast, not to yeah. rule out, but it's an amazing hospital that is right. specifically designed to do this exact thing. Tip for traumas like that. Yeah. So oh my, uh, my client then spends six weeks in intensive care and then a little bit in aftercare. And then when he's released from all that, he's never under guard. He's never charged with anything. After all of that, he's released and goes home. Now he's lost an eye and he's lost a large portion of his brain. And he begins to hear voices because he's has quite a lot of head trauma at this point. Yeah. Um, further down the road, he then decides to try to kill himself by jumping off a train bridge and wow. has to be airlifted again on the second time. It took over 45 minutes to get that air ambulance, but that's a separate story. When the GBI gets involved, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Bureau. when they come, they get involved because there's an officer that's been shot. They do the ballistics and realize, hey, it was the officer who shot the lieutenant, not this guy. In fact, there's only one discharged shot from this guy's handgun. And while there's a broken window next door, we can't find any actual discharged, like the actual round. Now, keep in mind, when he drew the gun at the officer's insistence at gunpoint, one of the shots went through his wrist, severing his tendons. Right. Well, push on those tendons and see what your fingers do. Yeah, okay. you can't 
you can't pull a trigger after being shot through the wrist like that. But when you're getting shot, your fingers all contract. So right. that would be a, a very plausible time for the gun to have gone off if it went off once. So they never do gunshot residue on anyone. They never do fingerprints. They'll just go, yeah, this is what happened. Everyone trusts us. Now I'm going to tell you from the perspective of my client that evening at 1130, hears the gunshots himself, but realizes, hey, I've got to go set my trash out on the curb. But since I'm in a bad area, I better gonna... take my gun with me that, right. I'm licensed, that I'm licensed to carry. That's a registered right. firearm. P.S. I own my home here and I'm making payments. I'm not even a renter. Okay. Right. He goes out with his trash. He sees that someone's pointing a flashlight. At no point does the officer at any point before the gun starts going off identify himself. himself. Yep. But he realizes, oh, this guy shot a light at me and is telling me to drop my gun. It's probably a cop. So let me step out here in the row with my hands up. Let him see. Hey, man, I'm not. I'm not. Okay, you want me to put it down? Okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it down, like you said. And that's when he starts getting shot. When we finally went to trial on this, uh, I'll tell you one thing, before trial, I kept going to the DAs and saying, he needs mental health help. We need to put him in the facility. He's lost a huge chunk of his brain. We, yeah. He needs specialized help. Help me get him in there. And the DA said, the police absolutely will not agree to that. They want us to bury this guy. Right. So we went to trial. It's Wait, the hold only on. Trial. can I hold on, James? How did this end up going to trial? Because in another incident, they ended up finding matching ballistics to the police officer who shot so, him six times. Is that why all of a sudden this case became interested and you go to trial? Like, how did you end up going to trial? I feel like I missed a part. So they initially charged him with two counts of aggravated assault against the law enforcement, one for shooting the one officer and one for shooting at the officer that shot him. Even though he was GBI never detained. Back, that's right. That's right. And when the GBI came back, they essentially said, someone's got to, so we got a hurt officer. You got to charge somebody with something. And so right. they charged him with two counts. They called him on the phone and said, please turn yourself in. He said, okay. And he drove himself to the police department and, or to the sheriff's department and turned himself in. Oh like, my gosh. This guy was like, I didn't do anything, but if you guys, yeah, here's what's up. When they charged him with the two and the GBI came back and said, hey, you shot your boss, not him. They just, they dismissed one. Graciously. To the officer. That's right. Okay. So they still had him against uh, on one count of that. It's the only time in jury selection out of all the jury trials I've ever done that we had to, as a defense, had to strike jurors for cause. And what that means is we ran into people who knew my client well enough that they couldn't be un impartial. We, oh. we all went into a back room and two people in this prospective jury pool said, no, I volunteer with him at the hospital. This guy's right. an amazing man. He could never, he would never attack a cop. This, there's no way. And because they already had that opinion, they had to be struck, two of them. That's how prolific this man was with his public service and helping people, okay? Long story short, we got a mistrial on that case. In the middle of charging the jury, before we even heard any evidence, the judge got extremely sick but the timing was essentially, he's telling the jurors, you have to be impartial and he's innocent until proven guilty. Oh, excuse me, I gotta go throw up. And it was like, that sort of put a bad look. 
So maybe we're going to ask yeah. for a mistrial. We, I'll tell you tangentially, we should not have been given the mistrial. We had to ask for it to save it for an appeal. But the senior judge that came in to take that, the sick judge's place, had already been, he literally said, I, I'd rather, I want to be at the beach right now. And I'm here. I get the same amount if I come in the morning and, or if I stay all day. So, yep, it's a mistrial. Done. And so he got to go back to his vacation. It was right before the second trial that I actually left the public defender's office. And so I only got to assist him from the outside in his defense. But a really great group of attorneys helped defend this guy because I had already done all the work and laid all the groundwork. We were ready to go. And I transitioned it over to them and helped them as much as I could. I'll fast forward to the closing arguments, which is, in my opinion, the most important part of the case where you finally get to say, this is what happened. Let me tell you. Right. When the public defender began to give her closing argument, as soon as she stood up, an officer in full dress uniform that had nothing to do with the, the case walked into the courtroom, making all kinds of hullabaloo, a courtroom had been empty up until now, other than the people involved in the case, walked all the way around the courtroom, sat down on the front row behind the district attorneys and began to stare at the jury. As oh soon as God. that officer was still, another officer walked in, made this, making the same hullabaloo. As soon as that one was still, another. And then so another. So filibustering. No one paid one bit of attention to whatever the DA of the public defender said. They were all watching these officers in full dress uniform, right. guns and everything, who came in and sat and stared daggers at the jury, daring them to rule against this officer until that entire side of the courtroom was pretty much filled with officers. No oh one listened gosh. to a word of the 20-minute closing argument that the, district, that the public defender said at all. They still found him not guilty of aggravated oh. assault against the law enforcement. They still found him not guilty of possession of a firearm or the commission of a crime. But jurors like to do what we call splitting the baby, Solomon split. They don't want, you know, they go, well, but you tried hard. We'll give you this lower one. So what they found him guilty of was uh, criminal destruction of property. I believe that was the actual crime for the window across the street, remember, that they found that was broken. Even though they didn't find his, the actual round, right? They, they said, this is the window that was broke when his firearm went off. And that's a felony. And the judge gave him five years to serve <gasps> on the broken window. On a broken window. And now, after a year, sure, sure, sure. Oh, and do they know that it, even though they can't find the round, they know that it's his bullet that broke this window? Could have no, already been broken before. Point. Is that the yes. like, it, it could have just, been. It could, it have, could been. have been anything. It could have been a little kid. It, it could have been, been a somebody rock. else's bullet. It could Did have it been happen? Do they know that window got broken during this incident? So before the trial, we don't know whatsoever how that window got broken. However, now that the jury has ruled that it was because of this bullet, it is a now legal fact that he is the one who broke the window because jurors can't be wrong. They said, this is what happened. And so legally speaking, that's what happened. I'll, I still will go down saying, even if it was, and I don't think it was, even if it was, 
I think that round was fired when the bullet went through his wrist and severed all his tendons, forcing his fingers to squeeze. The, the, the window wasn't even behind the officer's head. It was so 30 degrees. That doesn't make any sense. Exactly. That, no, a lot of this doesn't make any sense. Again, the more you see from my side, the right. more you go, holy cow, really? Is this a thing? Why didn't I hear about this on the news? Why wasn't this a national story? Right. Because there was no video. George Floyd is uh, the the people charged with killing George Floyd are on trial right now. Why is that such a national news? Why were there protests all over the country? Because you can't deny it. Because it was on video. Right. Because it was on video. That's how powerful these videos are. Had there been someone or a, a camera out there showing that my guy had his hands up, walked into the road, and then when the officer said, put your gun on the ground. He went, okay. And we reached out to put his gun on the ground. And that's when he got shot. This would have made it a national news, but we had eight or so different recording devices that strangely weren't working. Recorded nothing. Again, whether you think those officers were justified in doing that, or whether you think my guy was, his life was ruined with no good reason for doing so. He, he still got found guilty. I will add one more thing. That officer that responded to the scene was trying to go from a road crew, like people that write tickets and respond to domestics, to the drug team. Now, the drug team here, not so much lately in the last couple of years, but before that, we're all, they look like they could be pro wrestlers. Giant, full arm sleeve, tattoos, yeah. no, no necks, just huge guys. And when they went from road crew, they looked more like me, tall and lanky, <laughs> to looking like The Rock in about six months. And yeah. a lot of us don't think it was all just from push-ups. So during right. that transition that he was making, that's when he saw something move next to him and then opened fire on it. And he, everyone rallied around him. And that, that officer's still employed here uh, locally. In fact, while the lieutenant is no longer a lieutenant, in fact, I don't think he's an officer at all. The officer that was involved that actually pulled the trigger has actually been promoted a few times. So it's tough. It's tough to see this kind of stuff and say, and say nothing. It's tough to balance that kind of a story that we see all the time with, yeah. oh, I, I don't know how you do it. I can't defend those people. And yeah, again, they don't mean... Black people, they don't mean what they don't mean. They mean, oh, these people accused of crimes because everyone knows they're guilty or the police wouldn't have accused them of a crime. A, A good cop will tell you that it is the defense attorney, not to toot our own horns here, that holds them accountable. If they didn't have to jump through all the hoops to get warrants, if they didn't have to jump through all the hoops to follow and uphold everyone's constitutional rights, they would take short cuts and it's the defense attorney who says i'm so sorry judge but this has to be suppressed or this guy has to be dismissed because they didn't follow the constitution the law yeah and very few da's only one da that i've ever actually seen has one emotions hearing that they even they realized during the motion hearing i shouldn't win this and afterwards dismissed that was our the new Spalding County District Attorney, the first female district attorney that Spalding County's ever had, Marie Broder, she won a hearing against me and went, I really shouldn't have won that hearing. Like, this should totally be suppressed. I'm going to dismiss this case 
because even though I won, I shouldn't. Yeah. Right. And but I practice all over Georgia, and I've never seen another do that. They'll take can the we, win. And they'll take the win. Can let's get. I want to get back to the story because I know sure. Laura and I have several questions. There's a lot that happened in this that dumbfounding and incredulous but also disheartening and there's a couple of places in this story where you can understand why the police officer may or may not have reacted the way that he did but then there's a lot of places where it's like no you weren't following protocol so even when you say he he goes into this when you're responding to a neighborhood that shots have been fired why weren't his lights on why didn't he come in announcing himself with the lights on and as he's knocking it's I get that we have officers who typically patrol more dangerous areas I have an uncle he's a cousin technically but more like an uncle because it's just as complicated but he died in the line of duty. I just want our audience to know everything that I'm saying is in no way defaming the police or us versus them. I am looking at this right. at, in my opinion of what's right and what's wrong. And I, I, I feel totally- as a civilian, why then you have your lights on when you come into this neighborhood when shots have been fired. And I feel like backup should have been coming immediately also because you don't know if there's going to be someone who's hurt. There should have been I don't know protocol. I'm not a 911 dispatcher, but I'm sure they should have been, he should have been coming in with backup. First responder should have been like on standby. I don't know the protocol. Again, I might sound really ignorant saying these things, but as a civilian, this is what makes sense to me. And then, okay, he knocks on the door, no one answers. But when you see movement, and I get it's a dangerous situation, shots are fired, but when you see movement, that's the time to one, announce yourself, police, who's over there? Run back to your car and draw your weapon just because you saw movement out of the side of your eye. That could have been a cat. It could have been a dog. It could have been a child. My kids well, run what? outside barefoot all the time. I tell yeah. my 10-year-old in the middle of the night, hey, go take the trash out in the middle of the night. I took so my trash out in the middle of the night two days ago, and at no point did I think, boy, I, someone might shoot me for taking out my trash. That, that never even crossed my mind. My, I was much more worried about, oh, it's a little damp. My feet are going to get wet. That's what I'm worried about. But right. This, this guy had to arm himself because he also heard the shots. And right. I, maybe I wasn't clear earlier, but as soon as that officer got out of his car initially, his gun was drawn. His gun was drawn the entire time. When he was knocking on the door, his gun was drawn. Why is that the training? Now, again, right. the officer... Okay, is trained to respond exactly like he responded. He's trained to get out of the car with the gun drawn. He's trained to tell people to put down their guns while pointing his gun at them with no safety, with a round in the chamber. All right. Now, he probably was trained to announce himself. He's probably trained to announce to some subtle differences there, right? But the fact remains that the training is all about how they can go home at the end of the night. You got to protect yourself. You got to do whatever you got to do as opposed to, Hey, maybe we don't escalate this situation. Maybe we don't make assumptions. Maybe like the military, ask anyone who's gone, do you point your gun only at something 
that you're shooting at. And if you're telling a car to stop at a checkpoint, your gun is pointing at the ground and you're saying stop. And only when you're ready to fire and you've made a decision to fire, do you raise that weapon and level it. But the police are trained differently. The police are trained to level the gun at you, ready to fire. But if, if I point my gun at someone and they think I'm going to fire them, even if I don't, that's an aggravated assault because they are in the immediate apprehension that I'm going to fire at them. Mm-hmm. And that's the definition of aggravated assault. So the police are trained to, to do just that and expect compliance. Whereas we as civilians are told, don't aim your gun at anyone unless you're going to shoot them. And it's, that's a weird thing from the training point of view. So I can't get mad at the individual officer. He's told that's what he's supposed to do. And yet, how often the extra split second of just raising the gun perhaps go, maybe I shouldn't shoot this guy. But at the same time, the argument is there. Maybe that split second is how long it takes for somebody else to draw faster than me and I get shot. So I can see the arguments on both sides. So I had a question. You said that the first two, maybe two or three officers arrived without any lights on. That's and right. it's not until they say there's an officer shot. So that goes over the radio. And that's when more backups come in with their lights on. And cameras on. The rest of them, again, none of their cameras were activated at all. But like when they call that in, they know that it's the officer that shot them. They want it to, they, they are they trying? Okay, they didn't know that. It took the GBI later to uncover that. Okay. Even though obviously the officers involved must have known immediately, must have known that the car is between the two people and they're down the street from each other because he's at the, the next door neighbor's house. And the car is between the two. When a bullet comes through the front windshield, it can't go through the plate glass behind him and gets him in the ear. So the shooter must have been in front of him and not behind him. So there's no way those officers didn't know who whose bullet it was. And yet they still charged him with two counts of aggravated assaults against officers as if he was the one who shot that officer through the ear. And yet once we find out, once the GBI proves that bullet was from the officer, they don't go back and say, hey, you guys swore when you swore out these warrants, they call it swearing out a warrant because you're under oath when you do it, that's how that works. Mm-hmm. Hey, you lied under oath here. This is not okay. You can't do this. You knew, you had to have known. They just go, ah, you must have made a mistake. No big deal. No big deal. So in the very beginning of this episode, you were saying how each individual case needs to be taken just as that, as an individual case, and how there's just these eye-opening stories and that the system can be better. So in your experience and seeing this story and maybe other stories, what are some of the things that you would suggest on how the system could be improved? I think it starts at a training level. Because again, I really think this had nothing to do with the individual biases of the officers involved. The officer that got shot was an African-American. The officer doing the shooting was, was a white guy, but I, I don't think 
that played into it at all. What I think played into it and why this happened like it did is the training itself. The officers are trained. You're going to go in. You're going to take charge of a situation. You're going to respond in this way. You're going to here are the protocols at which you can fire. Here's when you don't. And it's very wrote into them. Their safety comes first. And so that's why when that officer got out of his car, he didn't see anyone around. And yet his gun with only a trigger safety, one in our you know, chamber, is already drawn. You know why? Because he's expecting a fight. He's expecting there to something bad to happen, as opposed to expecting him to come in and be the peacemaker. He's expecting to be a, in a fight. And again, that's not him. That's how he was trained to react. Um, I, I'm not there, but I disagree a little bit too, because all of our biases do affect the way that we react to a situation. I find it, I, he's expecting a fight because shocks are fired, but shots are also fired in this black neighborhood that has heavily gang population. So he has been programmed to be on the defense with black males in this neighborhood. Would you agree? Yes or no? Yes, because the black because male of the area shot was also responding the exact same way. He heard the right. shots, and so he went outside with his gun. So right, so much a black and white thing because the the black defendant involved responded the same way. But here's my I mean, point: he didn't have his drawn. It you doesn't know, like that's the difference. I don't think it has to be black versus white. What I'm saying is because anybody who patrols a predominant area, it could be a predominant Latino area. It could be a predominant Tongan. In Salt Lake, there's a lot of Tongan gangs. So when you patrol an area like that with a predominant race who creates most of, who wreaks most of the havoc, you do go in biased. You can't get around that because that's what you're doing every day. You are used to dealing with those types of individuals in that neighborhood and you're on defense a little bit more. So I find it hard to believe that had the officer seen a white guy in that neighborhood or in a Tongan neighborhood or a Latino neighborhood that he would have just fired right away. I don't know. He may have because he felt threatened because he was on edge because he was going in to deescalate. But I also don't think it's fair to say none of the biases played a part because as the black officer entered that area, his bias was probably also driving his response. He's going into this area that is predominantly black, dangerous, lots of gangs, shots are fired. He goes in with his drawn gaunt, his gun drawn because he's expecting to see a black male with this gun drawn because that's what they're used to. I, so uh, while I agree with the training, but I think you can't say that bias didn't in, impact it at all. I think I beg to differ. I, I, I think you might be right as far as the decision ultimately to fire. Yeah. I see a black guy with a gun. Uh, that said, to respond with his gun drawn, I'm a county commissioner. And so anytime yeah. that there's shooting out in the county, some neighbor calls me and goes, this is what happened. <laughs> and when they when the sheriffs come there as well, because somebody's shooting guns, even though it's totally legal to do that out in the county, yeah. When they respond, their guns are drawn there too. Now, yeah, it's it probably is less likely that someone's you know getting shot out there, but right. 
they usually also don't come in the middle of the night. So right. again, it's, it, it really is the, the power dynamic that's trained yeah. into them. Everyone must comply with what you say. You're in charge. And if they don't comply immediately, force them into compliance. That I really think is, if, if changed, would have a domino effect on a lot of other changes. Right. There, I wasn't planning on sharing another example of that, but there, there is one very quickly. There was three cars traveling in our, a county right south of us. One went off the road. Maybe she looked at her phone for a second and she hit a culvert and rolled her car and the two cars behind her stopped. She's pinned in her car and she's bleeding from her mouth and nose. One of the people who stopped behind her happened to be a former first responder, a former fire chief, who immediately grabs her head and angles it in such a way that she's able to breathe, even though blood's still coming out of her mouth. The second driver calls 911 and they're there rendering aid and helping this woman stay alive as the paramedics arrive. Before the paramedics get there, a state patrolman drives up. This state patrolman is actually a state patrol instructor who teaches cops how to respond in this situation. He immediately arrives, begins to set about taking control of the situation. And his first order is, sir, I need you to move your truck. And he says, I can't. I'm literally have both my hands covered in her blood. I'm holding her head at an angle that she can breathe. And he says, sir, I need you to move your truck right now. I'm not going to move my truck right now. My, my keys are in my pocket. You can pick them out and you can move my truck, even though it's not in the road, if you need to. But I'm not going to let go of her because as soon as I let go of her, she's going to start dying. And the wow. officer said, if you don't move your truck right now, I'm going to arrest you. And he says, you do what you need to do, but I'm not going to let this woman die. Oh, my gosh. As the helicopter landed in the field next door and they were putting her into the helicopter to take her to Grady, he's in the backseat of the trooper's car handcuffed. They arrest you have him got to be kidding me. Interference with police. Okay. What? Now, here's the crazy situation. That fire, former fire chief wrote the, the book literally on how to park vehicles in emergency situations. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. But that officer that responded is training officers. He normally doesn't respond. He's the one who teaches officers how to respond right. to situations. And that's how he was doing it because that's how he trains other people to do it. So eventually the charges get dropped. But he never should have been died. arrested to begin with. I'm sorry? But he never should have been arrested to begin with. I, I, absolutely not. It's absurd. It's absurd. Like our whole goal here is to help this woman who's dying not follow some sort of written police protocol but the police sometimes grab onto those protocols and say no i'm trained to do this or in this case i'm the trainer you you can't tell me i'm wrong i know what's up and i'm telling you this is what we're doing and it's so i really see a real issue there again not that all officers are bad not that this officer was some hateful person but like he was trained and now is passing on that training to others that I'm in charge. You must do what I say. This is right. how it works. Comply or else. And they're, he's not taking in the situation holistically. He's not seeing the full situation. He's not seeing the humans involved. He's seeing this is the protocol that I must observe. And if you don't do this, somebody's getting handcuffs. It's just, it feels like they're just like checking these boxes. 
Yeah, right? and not so being able to radical response as opposed to a human response. Yeah, and that's a big part of the problem because if you go back to our first episode when we had special agent Janet Hughes on with us, here she is as a federal agent in blue and gold, head to toe. She's in a government car. It was an unmarked car, but it's still a government car. You can see the government issued plates. Anyone can recognize those. But she gets out of the car. They get pulled over as they're actually going to serve someone. And this police officer pulls them over. She puts her badge out of the window, lets him know she has a gun because they are literally in pursuit to go arrest, to detain someone. And this police officer has his gun drawn at another federal agent and keeps it drawn and is yelling for her to get her hands up, get your hands up. Which one, I'm like, what part of protocol is that? Two, do you not see the human, not only your fellow blue and gold partner, but you don't see the human with their hands up who are complying and you're so busy pointing your gun and yelling that you don't recognize she's not even a threat and that she's on your team, right? There's, I know we're human and we all screw up and thank the Lord, I'm not a doctor. So my mistakes don't result in people dying, but- agree with you, James, that we have to have uh, much better training, but we also need the trainings to help us see people for who they are. Right. And that is what's going to help us see past our own biases. Every right. single one of us has bias and it drives our decisions every single day. It drives our feelings. You may not even realize that you might think, oh, I love this person and I'm I'm nice to them doesn't mean you don't have it we all have it but the more that we can get better training for our our officers our first responders even the bias training sharing these stories so that we can see people for who they are and I'm not going to pretend that I know what it's like to be in a moment with a gun drawn in your face by a police officer I've had some stuff go down I haven't had a cop pull a gun on me but that's like another podcast story where I was terrified no really for, uh, we were doing nothing wrong and being slammed against cop cars and put in handcuffs for just sitting on a car in a park. Like we were doing nothing. And we weren't even breaking park rules because the park wasn't even closed. And so it just gets so crazy. But it, anyway, Laura, I feel like there's something more like you wanted to say. I think the bureaucratical, like the bureaucracy that's taken over is in response to almost a way to counter that. If we do it by the book, it takes our own biases out of it because the decisions are already made because of the book. But I think that if instead of becoming more bureaucratic about it and more robotic about it, we embrace those biases, we're conscious of what the other person is thinking and feeling. Okay, in this situation, what's this person's motivation? He wants to get away from me. And right. if he can get away from me, he's not going to shoot me. He's not going to shoot anybody else. And I'm just trying to pull him over for speeding. Look, this is not a good guy, but like, I've got his tag number. I can be at his house before he is. High speed car chase. Maybe we don't need a shootout. Maybe we don't need someone to lose their life. As opposed to following sort of these rigid protocols and rules like a robot. If you could see it as a human and see it not to get religious, but in, in almost in a more Christ-like way, hey, you're a human, I'm a human, let's deal with this as fellow humans. I, I think 
that's a better way to overcome those biases. That's a better way to address this, to de-escalate situations and, and then deal with it even from the situation to all the way through the prosecution and go, oh, this person needs my help. This happened because of an underlying issue. Let's not just punish this crime. Let's deal with this underlying issue so that this person never has to come through our system again. Laura, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just, I wanted to ask James, just if you're around cops a lot and just how that trial went down at the end with all of these, these cops coming in and backing this officer and just where does that come from? Do you think police are, it's just this like brotherhood that like, you're not going to break. Do you feel like any of those officers could have or would have, if they saw the injustice here, not done that, or would they have felt like that obligation to join with those officers? Laura, I also find it really hard that they didn't see the injustice. I'm just going to throw that out there. Did they see it? How do you not see it? I'm sorry. I think well, I mean, they were wrong. Most so of those my question officers- is, do they feel like they can go against that? Because there obviously is, but can they still feel safe amongst their peers if they stand up for what they really think is right in defense of those officers they had probably only heard the the side of the story from the officers involved oh this guy was wild he was out of control he was out to get me and they go man i can't believe that someone would even dare defend this person because they're only getting that one side which Mm. who knows how biased it was who knows how you're reflective of the facts it was obviously i'm I'm on his side. Here I am portraying it. There's three sides to every story. But at the same time, I get where, where they're coming from. But I think that you're right. That that whole idea of the, the thin blue line, that thin blue line is the, the Maginot line. It's the Great Wall of China. It is, it, it's, it is an impenetrable stone barrier at times. But that's the nature of unions in general. The whole point is we're all going to stand behind each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt, even when we probably shouldn't, because maybe I'm going to be falsely accused of doing something bad. And that, that happens a lot. People get arrested and go file reports and go, this officer was attacking me. And you go, you're you're full of crap. That's not happening at all. This is, these are good officers and the overwhelming majority of them are. And so the officer's default position is we have to stand shoulder to shoulder against anyone from the outside that would dare come in and you know question us an armchair quarterback look in their rear view mirror how dare you couldn't you could never do my job my job i'm trying to get home to my family at night I, i get that angle but at the same time i think that when it goes too far that it becomes counterproductive it becomes counter to freedom it becomes literally the opposite they're they're now cementing imagine if antifa had a version of the american flag that they flew and people were putting that in bumper stickers like how upset would conservatives be or you know you know people in general be but yet that's exactly what the police do and everyone shrugs and goes yeah that's fine I, i don't know if they do it out in utah but a lot of times here i see police officers with tattoos and decals on their cars of the 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 skull the the punisher skull from the comic book yeah like i i really hope and pray that they've never read that comic because 
that guy was not a law enforcement agent. <laughs> that guy no. was vengeful. <laughs> yeah. Guy, but like extrajudicially, <laughs> that's that's to put it politely. And yet you have officers of the law getting his symbol tattooed on them. Embodying that. And you're going, wait a minute now. What? Like that's not, that's the opposite of what we want someone who's here to serve and protect. But you're not yeah. here to kill bad guys. You're here to serve and protect. And it, it, it's just weird that culture can take that strong of a self-defense posture when in reality they should be the ones most offended at officers who are in the wrong who are most when an officer makes them all look bad like they don't say one bad apple and the rest are probably okay they say one bad apple swells the bunch and yet the rest of the, the apples here aren't going get that bad apple out of here he should be punished how dare he we put extra right. trust in him, and he makes all of us look bad. They say, no, we're all rallying around. There are no bad apples. Right. And you go, wait a minute. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. I think all we can do for those of you listening is, one, share these stories so that as civilians, you can try the best that you can to comply. When you're interacting with a police officer, always be respectful, comply pray yes. they're not in a bad mood or triggered in some shape form or fashion because you really don't know what's going to happen this guy was taking out his trash completely compliant ended up with six bullet shot bullet holes tr- brain damage and is now a convicted felon and all he did was take out his trash and comply oh wait it's- can i ask one more question i know you're wrapping up but so we know we james said what he was convicted of how where is he now? That was my last question. Did he, how long did he serve? And is he out now? Where is so he? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I checked on him two years ago and they had moved him after about a year in like normal population to a, like a mental health facility specifically for mental health, like inmates, which is where I initially argued for hey, let's just send him here. That'll give him the help that he needs and he'll be in custody and he'll be taken care of. And he was fine going there, but the police were like, no, we want him to go to prison. And so eventually the Department of um, Corrections came back with his assessment and said he could he should clearly go here. And so that's where they put him. I, I don't know if he's, if he's ever left there. Gotcha. Okay, I'm sorry I interrupted, Andrea. I just wanted to know what actually happened to him in the end. Uh, sounds like he's still locked up in some shape, form, or fashion. Yeah, right. I, when we did away with our mental health institutions, like we had in Milledgeville, we didn't really create an alternative. And right. so we just started sending those people to prison and that's a terrible alternative. And so I think now he's in as close to a non-custodial mental health facility as exists and he definitely needed to to be in one he was a harm to himself when he was out on his own and so uh, he was okay going there he needed he knew he needed assistance he's lost the use of his right hand he only has one eye and he all the mental health issues coming from losing a chunk of your brain and so he recognized he couldn't live on his own he, he had lost the house because he couldn't work and so he couldn't pay for the mortgage and we realized he needed and he was fine going into that kind of a situation but to get him there took 
real extraordinary links and the justice system really failed him and could have helped him and could have helped society in general, which is really why we have a judicial system. But instead, it the justice system failed him. It took literally the Department of Corrections to decide on their own to do the right thing, which they eventually did do. Well, and they didn't just destroy him. They destroyed his family and generations to come. That's right. And because people don't real oftentimes when you when we talk about the whole situation, like as slave owners, and you'll have poor whites who say, hey, my family was too poor. They couldn't even own slaves. That wasn't us. But that doesn't mean that those families still didn't benefit from the system. The poor whites were still able to buy homes. And guess what happens when you buy a home? You create equity. You pass that down to your family, or you can sell it and give the money to your family. And so by this guy, so your family still benefits from the system, even if because they were able to just be homeowners. And so this guy lost his home, can't pass anything down to his family, can't see, has mental health issues, has can't use his right hand, all because he was taking out the trash. And then he didn't and even it's ruined get the neighborhood's confidence in the police. Of course they, it has. They're of not course calling it has. fired anymore. There's no trust now because why should we call for help? I might be the one end up who's dead. Right. And then and let's not even get me started on the whole, the police officer who's shot in the ear goes to the trauma helicopter yeah. and not this guy yeah. whose brains are laying. And at that point, it is supposed to be about saving his life. He is not a threat. The threat has been neutralized. They take oaths to do everything possible, no matter what, to save someone's life. And here he is bleeding out on the sidewalk while this other guy who's been shot in the ear takes the right. helicopter to the trauma center and then he gets a backup. Again, you can't tell me that bias didn't impact that decision either. Someone should have stood up and got that guy on the right helicopter and it took the medics to even call in the helicopter. There's just uh, so again, much though, sadness there in isn't, isn't a racial bias. It's a, I don't want this person to eventually be able to testify against the officer. I didn't say it was racial bias, James. I said bias. Their bias yeah. lies in all different shapes, forms. Exactly. I think it's that thin blue line going, yeah, let's take our time with this guy just in case our friend here that's on our side of this line did something wrong. We won't, we'll have one less witness. So their own biases are standing in the way, like I yeah. said, of this yeah. guy getting help. And I'm actually glad that you brought that up because for all you listeners out there, listen, Bias doesn't have to just be about race. It doesn't. I don't know why we all of a sudden go there. There are biases because of your gender, because of age, because of your sexual preference, because of your affiliation with the, within your job. You've got nurses and doctors who band together, first responders, police, mm-hmm. uh, firefighters, lawyers, teachers, right? There's teachers unions, construction. Bias impacts everyone across all platforms. This isn't just specific to race. And that's why we have this show, so that we can have these super uncomfortable conversations. This was hard. This was sad. Normally, we like to leave our audience with a high note, like something they can take away. I think all I can say, all you can take away is speak up where you can in your sphere to get the right people elected in your area to make good choices and inform policies in your area and your own self take control to be compliant when you're faced with something like this. Teach your kids how to be compliant and respectful. 
your neighbors, people in your church community, school communities. It's really all I can say. Laura, do you have something else they could take away? Do you want to add? I was just curious if James did have any positive thing that he thinks we could get out of this. What has he learned from this situation? Yeah. It, unfortunately, it takes situations like this, like George Floyd, sort of yeah. shock the, the, the conscience of the nation back awake. I mean, I'm a conservative, Christian, Republican, Eagle Scout, teetotaler as it gets. And yet when Black Lives Matter had a rally here in town about George Floyd's murder, because that's what I will forever call it. I, I went and I attended and I spoke at it. Yeah. And everyone's looking at me, what are you doing here? Like, I'm mad as you are. What are you talking about? And my, my comments there were, okay, you're all registered to vote. Great. You all voted. Great. When's the last time you went to a county commission meeting? When's the right. last time you spoke at a county commission meeting? When's the last time you called a county commissioner? Their numbers are listed. Call them. Tell them what's up. Tell them how you want change. Tell them what you're seeing. Voting is incredibly important. Being on a jury is incredibly important. But those are still almost passive ways to get involved in our republic. Right. You can consciously, proactively get involved by calling these people. They want you. We want you to call us. I don't know what's going on all over my entire county unless somebody calls and says, hey, here's this issue. And when right. they do, I take it seriously. And so does every other elected official. That's how you get involved. That's how you make change. Let these kind of situations wake you up. Holy moly, we have to do something about this. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to call and say, hey, I, I want to be proactive. And I want you, my elected official, to be proactive in making changes so that this kind of stuff never happens again. Amen. I think we're going to wrap it up right there. Thank you so much, James, for sharing. Thank you for leaving us with a positive call to action of what people can do. So many times our audience members say, I don't know, I don't know. And you just gave them a clear plan of action. So thank you. I appreciate that. Guys, if you want to come on the Wake Up Stories and share your story, you can email us at hello at thewakeupstories.com. If you need to need help with unplot implicit bias trainings, or speaking events, you can find us at thewakeupstories.com. Also join our Facebook group, The Wake Up Stories, to continue the conversation about this. Ask any questions that you want in terms of any type of bias. But yes, the more we wake up to it, as James said, the more we say, holy moly, what? And we wake up to it, the quicker we can all start to make a difference within ourselves, within our home, and within our community. Thank you guys so much for joining. We'll see you later next time.